These bashings were all too frequent on the railway. Sometimes, if a whole gang was suspected of slacking, we'd be lined up and the Japanese would walk along, slapping each of us in turn. But they treated their own men no better. Once, when we were on a fatigue in a Japanese camp, we saw 14 privates who'd misbehaved themselves. I think they'd gone out without their ground sheets. They were lined up, seven aside, facing each other, and at a word from the sergeant, began to slap each other's faces. If the sergeant thought that one of them was not in earnest, he'd pull him away and show him how face-slapping really should be done. Naturally, we found all this quite entertaining. I must say here that I came across no case of sadism. I've heard stories of it, and I can well believe them, because in war, ghastly things are done on all sides. But the cases of harsh treatment or cruelty that I came across were always for a reason. If they bashed us, it was because they reckoned we could work harder. Someone once pointed out to me a big Korean guard, most of the lower-ranked guards were Koreans, who'd beaten a man to death the day before, and it made my flesh creep just to look at him. But apparently he'd done it because he thought the man had stolen something. One day, cholera, that scourge of the undernourished, struck the camp. The first man to get it died within four hours of reporting sick. Quite suddenly, the whole atmosphere of the camp changed. You can laugh off the Japanese, you can laugh off hunger, but you can't laugh off cholera. It was almost as though death in person had come into our midst and was claiming his victims. Fit men would be changed to skin and bone overnight. No one was safe. Some people scalded their eating utensils in the fire till they grew too hot to hold and yet went down. Other people didn't seem to bother and came through unscathed. I can't remember doing much myself about it, and apart from a jungle saw on my ankle, I was relatively fit. It was about this time that it came to me very strongly one day that I really had the faith. Our faith seemed to me quite invincible, indestructible. And I remember thinking that if every church and cathedral in the world were to be destroyed, there would be no problem in putting them all up again. It was around this time, too, that the thought entered my head that I might perhaps die there. As I said, we had cholera in the camp, and I think about half of us died in that one month. Well, the proximity of death seemed quite pleasant. We know we're always in God's hands, but when you're close, close to death, you almost get the feel of his fingers. During those days, the world seemed to have a special charm. As I walked out of the cutting, the trees in the forest looked somehow different, as the school buildings looked somehow different on the morning of my last day at school. I felt I might be seeing them for the last time. But now, of course, when we got back to the camp at night, we had the added task of burying those who had died during the day. What saved me, perhaps, from getting cholera was the fact that I'd never had malaria. Malaria leaves you very weak. While you have it, you lose all your appetite, and in those days, of course, there was always someone happy to eat your dinner for you. But when you started feeling better, there wasn't the food you needed to build you up again. 
post-malarial inanition was, I believe, often given as the cause of death. Though I heard that one doctor simply put down starvation, but he had to change it. Anyhow, I never got malaria, and used to imagine my guardian angel, like a fighter pilot, shooting down the Anopheles mosquitoes as they came in to attack me. I later heard that the dengue fever, which I'd had in the early days of our captivity, and which knocks you out completely for about four days, immunizes you against malaria. But I still like to give the credit to my guardian angel. In this camp, I was once caught out by trying to be too clever. It was the monsoon period, and every evening, for a few minutes, the rain simply poured down. It would suddenly start, and after a tremendous downpour, would suddenly stop. Since it was always around the same time, I got the great idea that I'd have a shower under the water that poured off the top of our tent. So that evening I was all ready, soap in hand. Suddenly the heavens opened, and in a flash I was under the water shooting off the tent. I soaked myself, and soaped myself up as quickly as I could, but before I could get back out of the water, the rain suddenly stopped. When I'm having my morning shower, and find myself hoping there won't be a power cut till I've finished, I think it must be due to that experience. We had no anaesthetics, or indeed doctors, in that camp, but we did have some med medical orderlies. I remember one called Nicholas. He was an Indian and a Catholic, and he was outstanding in that he went and lived with the cholera patients to look after them and be with them when they died. And, of course, they mostly did die. In fact, I knew only one man who didn't. He was a Norfolk farmer, not tall, but very solidly built with a barrel of a chest. He was hairy, too, with hair on his shoulder blades, so you almost felt like patting him as you passed. Well, the cholera bug was no match for him, and he recovered. What the medical orderly did, apparently, when men got cholera, was to sharpen a thin piece of bamboo, stick it into a vein, and pour in a saline solution. This prevented total dehydration, because when you have cholera and go to the loo, it's like water that comes pouring out. They said that when it started looking more like weak cocoa, it meant you were getting better. One evening, when we got back from the cutting, we heard there was a priest in the camp. He was a young Australian Maoist father, who'd been given permission by the Japanese to travel up and down the line to minister to the troops in the various camps. He was a father Lionel Marsden, but known to his fellow Maoists as Sam, on account of an Australian comedian called Sam Marsden. Father Marsden was always cheerful, never complaining, always ready to help anyone, always a priest. He was indeed as fine a priest as ever you could hope to meet. So when we heard there was a priest in the camp, word was passed round among the Catholics, and after supper we went to one end of the camp where a packing case had been set up to serve for an altar, and where confessions were already being heard. Two men standing together, talking in whispers, and a group of men sitting or standing more or less out of earshot. When all the confessions had been heard, mass began. The forest leaves overhead 
effectually kept out any light there may have been from the moon or stars, but two thin candles stuck to the altar with their own wax were sufficient. As I looked at the columns of the trees disappearing into the darkness overhead, and at the faces of my friends intent on the actions of the priest, I thought, St. Peter's in Rome must be very fine, but surely this is what keeps the church going. After Mass was over, and we'd all received Holy Communion, he blew out one of the candles, and in the light of the other started unvesting and packing his things away in his haversack. And while doing this, he gave us one of the best sermons I've ever heard. You may think, he said, that you're having a pretty awful time, but if only you knew how to see it properly, you would realize you're living through one of the most precious times of your life. That's all I remember, but he must have said a good deal more, for he was speaking for several minutes. Next morning he went on his way, looking for the, for the next camp up the line, and we went out to work, more ready now perhaps, to let God fill up in our bodies those things that were wanting to the sufferings of Christ. Father Marsden was really like a living miracle. No one knew where he slept. No one knew at a time when almost every spoonful was counted how he ate. We heard that he received many bashings from the Japanese. I cannot look back on his memory without emotion, as I recall his smiling heroism and utter forgetfulness of self. Soon after this, we finished the main work of the cutting and were given a day's holiday, the first we'd had since coming to Siam. Most of us celebrated it by going down to the river and having a wash, because so far, washing had been done mostly out of mess tins. I used to have a very good all-over wash myself, using simply a mug with water, of course, and an old handkerchief. While we were standing there in the river, the man next to me said, Hey, chum, you wash my back and I'll wash yours. And as I washed his back, I thought, <laughs> This is really life in the raw. <laughs> One poor man, I remember, dropped his soap in the river. And Kelly got a great shock on this day, because he hadn't seen his legs for six weeks, or at any rate hadn't noticed them, having worked and slept in the same old pair of sacks. And they came up from the river, horrified at how thin they had got. Next day, we went back to the cutting to work on an embankment, but soon afterwards I had to report sick and came off work owing to the jungle sore I had on my ankle. Let me tell you something about these jungle sores, which afflicted many of us. You start off with a cut or graze or some break in your skin. Then a bug of some sort gets in and starts eating away your flesh. So the wound gradually grows with a sort of green scum on top. If it's not treated, it will just keep growing. One man in our camp got lost on his way to the cutting at night, and only after three days did he find his way back to us, but by then he already had a huge jungle sore. Another poor fellow had nearly the whole of his shin laid bare, and I heard that he turned over where he lay, and his leg broke, and he died. I heard of three ways of curing jungle sores. The best way 
was to have the rotten flesh cut out. With the bacteria gone, the wound would be able to heal up. But this way was not open to us on the railway, because, as I say, we had no anaesthetics and, at least in our camp, no doctors. Another way was to burn the rotten part away with potassium permanganate. They did this with mine later on, but I got up too soon and the wound broke down. Later, in the hospital camp, it was cut out and then healed up. The third way of dealing with jungle sores was the most original. You first of all take a couple of grubs out of the latrines. These are fat little white grubs that later on turn into blue bottle flies. You place them on the wound and cover it all up with a patch you cut from a, ban from a banana leaf. You then stick this down round the edge with latex which you've taken from the rubber trees. Then you leave it all for three or four days. When you take off the banana leaf dressing, you find that the grubs have eaten the bacteria that were giving all the trouble. The wound is now red and healthy. The grubs have cleaned up all the infection and you can now tip them back into the latrines. Towards the end of our stay in this camp, we had an enormous amount of meat. It happened like this. We were really fortunate in having the Australians with us because besides being very good company, they were marvellously enterprising. Whether they stole them or found them roaming loose in the forest, I never knew, but they began coming back from the cutting, driving two or three bullocks in front of them. The Japanese winked at this, and soon small parties of Australians were going out, bringing back nine or ten bullocks at a time. Although we ate them as quickly as we could, and of course the Japanese took all the best cuts, we soon had a herd of fifty or so corralled at one end of the camp. It was encouraging just to go and look at them and feel that one was not right at the bottom of the scale of creation. The meat was very tough, and many people's digestion could not stand the strain, and they had to content themselves with the gravy. One day I thought I'd make myself some oxtail soup. So I got half a dozen of these bullock's tails from the cookhouse and stood them up in a four-gallon petrol tin, our usual cooking utensil. They looked like bicycle pumps. I thought a sort of oxtail essence would flow down the inside of the tails into the water, but it didn't work out like that. After a, a half an hour of boiling, it still, still looked like dirty water, so I threw it all away. Although I never learned how to make oxtail soup, I think I learned a lot of other things during those months we spent working on this cutting. To see men under such extreme conditions is to see almost the very roots of their character. Some men show themselves to be true heroes. Others turn out to be less heroic. I remember a Gurkha major, whom I never got to know, but who always struck me as being a man of steel. I felt sure he was a man you could cheerfully trust with your life and who would never let you down. And I remember a New York Jew called Stanley Wilbur. I fancy his ship had been torpedoed and he'd been landed to Singapore from a German submarine. One day, seeing my jungle saw, he gave me a new bandage, still in his hygienic wrapping. Now, in those circumstances, he could have sold that bandage for a lot of money and bought himself food. 
but he gave it to me as though it were mere nothing. I met various Americans during our time of captivity, and generosity seems to be one of their national characteristics. There was another American in our party called Pearl, whom I thought remarkable. Pearl was his surname. He was slightly built and had the air of a dilettante, always with a joke on his lips in a deprecating, modest way. He didn't seem to take anything very seriously, and he stayed just the same right through the very worst days, always cheerful, always ready to help. There was only one sad case of meanness that I remember when someone went to get a sick man's dinner for him, and on the way back made adjustments to the helpings to his own advantage. I heard that the poor man who did this died later when he himself fell sick. People do indeed vary greatly. I think a lot must depend on their upbringing. Some people are brought up to admire the boy who stood on the burning deck whence all but he had fled, and some people aren't. They think him plain stupid. I noticed this during the fighting. People you admired in England seem different when the shells are dropping, and people you, you never thought much of at home show themselves rock-solid when things go wrong. I suppose the moral of all this is that we should try never to judge anyone. We don't know their strengths, and we don't know our own weaknesses. Although the Japanese paid us from time to time, by far the greater part of our income, both now and throughout our captivity, came from the sale of our possessions. People who began their prison life with a reasonable amount of clothing and equipped with the usual accessories of watch, fountain pen, cigarette lighter and so on, ended it with no more than they stood up in. Everything that could be sold was sold. Clothes, shoes, bedding, wedding rings. People were even selling the gold fillings from their teeth. But I remember one poor fellow in our party who had a gold cigarette case his wife had given him that he could not bring himself to sell, and he died. I've often thought of that. Unhappily, a too great love of our possessions can lead us to lose more than our earthly life. When people had no more to sell, they took to stealing from the Japanese. I heard of some men who'd been beaten to death for selling tools to the natives. People who made money in this way would pass it on to others less enterprising against cheques and IOUs made on for English pounds. The rate of exchange in such transactions varied, but it worked out so that a pound of potatoes would cost, well, nearly a week's salary. Or even more. So we were paying dearly for our survival. I don't know how many of these IOUs were honoured on our return home, my bank manager asked me if he should pay the cheques I'd signed, but I saw no reason why he shouldn't. Still, a good American friend, Dennis Rowland, returned my cheque to me, torn up. When they had no more to sell, and there was no chance of taking things from the Japanese, a few men took to stealing things from their comrades. Later on, when I'd returned to Singapore, this reached serious proportions, but here in Siam, there were so many men dying, there was little temptation to steal from the living. Sometimes 
the hospital orderly would come round to see how a patient was faring, only to find him lying dead and stark naked, all his possessions having been taken from him. One thing I learnt during this time was that poverty brings its own reward. People who carried a lot of gear around with them were forever fearful of thieves or of the next move or worried about their diminishing resources. People who had no more than they stood up in seemed more light-hearted. When the cutting and all the work connected with it had been finally finished, our camp closed down. A small party of fit men went further up the line to join another camp, and the rest of us went downriver by barge to a hospital camp. Our arrival at this hospital camp is among my happiest memories of the war. To be able to lie on the bamboo floor of a hospital hut and feel that you are safe at last, safe from being suddenly called out on some killing fatigue, safe so that you would sleep and sleep and sleep. It seemed that the world could offer us nothing more desirable. We call that camp Camburi, but I think this may have been our abbreviation for a longer name. Father Marsden had come down to the hospital camp with us. He knew there would be plenty of work for him there, and I expected too that he must have felt very weak from his continual trekking up and down the railway line in search of his scattered flock. He said Mass early every morning in the little operating theatre. This was the screened-off end of one of the long hospital huts. For his altar, he used the operating table. This was made of bamboo and measured about seven foot by, by thirty inches. Apart from the attap leaves, which were used for the roof, Bamboo was our only building material. Not that we ourselves had built these hospital huts. The Japanese must have got the local natives to put them up for us. By now, my jungle saw was about four inches across. And since we had anaesthetics in the camp, and also some surgeons, one of them, Dr. Kevin Fagan, decided to cut out the infected part. I was the first man in that day, and as I lay there on the operating table, I thought to myself, who was last lying here? And I realised it had been our blessed Lord. And what was he doing? Offering himself to the Father for my sins and the sins of the world. So I tried to borrow his thoughts while I waited for the anaesthetic. After the operation, I still had this large wound, but it was now a healthy red colour. However, I was still very weak, and needed more than our rations to build myself up. So I sold my watch and began to eat eggs. Ten or twelve eggs a day was my usual diet, and slowly the wound began to close up. Every day there'd be a millimetre or so of new flesh round the edge of the wound. It was marvellous to watch it. The eggs were duck eggs and were green inside and smelt of rotten fish, because the ducks, we understood, were fed of rotten fish, but they were eggs, and they saved my life. Or perhaps I should say that my watch did. It had been a 21st birthday present, a really providential gift. Later, when I thanked Dr. Fagan for what he'd done, he just smiled and said, 
don't thank me, thank the Lord. After the war in the seminary, when I was trying to understand the doctrine of the mystical body and the intercession of the saints, I remembered those eggs. In Siam, I put eggs into one end of myself, into my mouth, and right down at the other end, on my ankle, a wound began to heal. This marvel helped me see that our prayers in England can indeed help someone in New Zealand, or even in purgatory, and the prayers of the saints in their glory could also help us poor sinners on earth. It's the mystery of living organisms, whether of our own bodies or of the mystical body of Christ. The anaesthetic, I may say, didn't always work, and I was told of one of the surgeons in our camp, a cheerful Irishman, who came in one day and saw one of his friends lying there on the operating table. To encourage him, he said, You know, this is going to be a real triumph of mind over matter. I don't mind, and you don't matter. But the anaesthetic was a great boon. Up in the jungle, the surgeons, to keep the patient still during the operation, had to choose their orderlies for their weight and strength. But now, a man could have his ulcers cut out painlessly and get a good night's sleep into the bargain. There was a man in the camp at this time, I remember, who had a great abscess at the base of his spine. The surgeon watched his progress, and when it was judged ripe, fixed the operation for five o'clock one evening. But Salvatore Ambolando, as they say, that same morning, the unfortunate man, coming out of his hut, slipped in the mud and landed flat on his back, so the operation was not needed. But although we had anaesthetics for operations, there was a great shortage of the kind needed to give a man in constant pain a night's sleep. However, there was a Dutch soldier in the camp who could do this in a way no one could understand. He was a Jew, and his first name was Hercules. I forget his surname, but I got such a kick out of saying, Good morning, Hercules, that I'd go out of my way to greet him, and so we became acquainted. His name belied his appearance, though, for he had a wretched physique, but he had a fine head and strong dark brown eyes, and he could somehow draw pain from people. He stand by the patient, with his hand outstretched to the affected part, as though we were warming his hands to the wound, and slowly the pain would go, and then Hercules could send the patient to sleep by, I think, ordinary hypnotic means. He found the process very exhausting and was able to do it only a few times a day. I saw him at work once on a big Dutch officer whose legs were paralysed and Hercules had been sent along to see what he could do. He was standing by the bed, tense, his eyes half-closed, the veins on his forehead visible, his hands outstretched and quivering by the Dutchman's feet who, by way of contrast, was leading back, greatly at his ease, smoking a cheroot. I forget what the outcome was. One day we heard that Hercules was sick, and soon after that he died. I don't know what his religious practice had been, but I'm sure our Lord must have treated very gently one who took on himself so readily the sufferings of others. There was also a Dutch doctor in the camp, a Eurasian, whose Christian name was Napoleon, and as I had him for a friend too, 
I felt I was moving in very distinguished circles. About the greatest consolation I had at this time was eating. Eggs were only ten cents each, and as I had sold my watch for $250, I was able to eat, as I've said, a great many. People often didn't bother to cook them, but just beat them up raw with sugar or lime juice or bananas. As we didn't wear much, there was a camp order soon after our arrival, forbidding men to go around naked. We were able to see our bodies putting on flesh. We were, indeed, very thin when they arrived at the camp from the railway. I remember looking at one man and thinking that I could almost hang my hat on his hip bone sticking out. And one poor fellow said to the doctor, Doctor, I've got a lump in my stomach. I can feel something hard sticking up. The doctor felt him and said, Oh, you needn't worry about that. That's just your backbone. So we really looked forward to our meals. And this reminds me of one of my happiest memories. It was soon after my operation, and I'd been woken up by a clatter at the far end of the hut, and the cry of the orderlies, breakfast up. I lay drowsily where I was, thinking agreeable thoughts about food, when I felt a tap on my shoulder. It was Father Marsden. Have you broken your fast? No, Father. He took the picks from his pocket, gave me Holy Communion, and was gone. I lay down again. What a God we have. When we can't go to Holy Communion to him, he must needs come to us. I believe the French have a saying, Il y a un qui baise et un qui tourne la joue. There is one who kisses and one who puts out their cheek to be kissed, meaning that in marriage there is always one who loves more than the other. Well, in the relationship between God and ourselves, there's no doubt who loves the more. Another time, when I was lying there after my operation, a rat ran over my chest. You might not think it, but even though they run so quickly, rats grip with their claws at every step they take. They're very thorough creatures. On another occasion, I was able to watch an insect that had landed on me. It was just having a rest, and I was able to look at it for a minute or two. It was less than an inch long, but delicate and very beautiful, with fluffy yellow tufts on the ends of its antennae. I thought how God must enjoy making such an elegant creature, and in a place where there was so little to please the eye, it was a joy to see it. When I was up and about, the commanding officer of the camp asked me to start a shaving club. He was Major Marsden, senior medical officer and brother of our father Marsden. The men in the camp were the ones who had survived those months on the railway, and their only interest now was on staying alive and building up their strength. They weren't bothered much about how they looked, but Major Marsden reckoned that if everyone were shaved, it would help morale. Most people had sold all their shaving tackle by this time, but we managed to buy a few open razors and engaged some barbers who went round the camp shaving the patients as they lay in bed. In Australia, before the war, it seems, they used to have shaving competitions 
to see who could shave people quickest. I suppose they must have disqualified anyone who drew blood, otherwise it would have been too terrifying for the man in the chair. One of the champion shavers was in our camp now, and it was amazing to see him at work. He seemed just to wave his razor around the man's face, and the lather and stubble would disappear under your eyes. To while away the hours, we used to have many quizzes in the evenings, and I almost got to the point of knowing who won the Melbourne Cup in 1932. I learned, too, that you don't pronounce Melbourne, Melbourne, but Melbourne. Because of the shortage of books, some people also read aloud to the patients. But I can remember doing this myself for only about a week. It was a short thriller, and I was reading it to twelve men screened off at the end of a hut. It was an exciting book, and it turned out at the end that the person you'd been suspecting all along hadn't done the crime, but someone who'd been thought quite innocent. But seven men had died before we learnt this. However, I found myself not only feeling no sympathy for them, but rather feeling almost irritated that they'd obviously not been listening. The excitement of the story should have been enough, I thought, to keep anyone alive. And anyhow, they died thinking the wrong person had done it. I suppose that with so much death on all sides, my sensibilities had become dulled. Many people did indeed die in that camp, and Father Marsden was kept busy. Because I was now relatively fit and moving around a good deal to see how the shaving club was going, one of the non-Catholic chaplains asked me to ask his men, if they were dying, whether they'd like to see him. This showed me how blessed we were with our sacramental system for getting into heaven. If one of our men was dying and had been away from his religion for half a lifetime, Father Marsden, in two minutes, would have got him back safely into the arms of God and ready to meet him. One of our doctors told me of a rather horrifying experience he'd had. He'd put out a few bodies for burial, and as he walked past them, he saw there were more than he'd put out. So he went over them one by one, and found that one man was still alive. The poor man was so wearied of life and had so lost all hope that he laid himself out with his dead comrades to join them in their common grave. People varied a great deal in the face of death. Our own people and the Australians would put up a great fight to live. But some men, I was told, would take off their ring and give it to a friend to return to their family and just go into the hospital and die. Tobacco was more easily available now, and this made a great difference to the smokers. In the early days in Singapore, people had resorted to smoking tea leaves and dried cherry leaves. Later, they learnt that the tomato and the eggplant belonged to the same general family as the tobacco plant, so people used these leaves to eke out the little tobacco they were able to buy. I've just looked up eggplant in my dictionary, and there's no mention of it. So perhaps his real name was something else. But anyhow, that was what we called it. I think there must be something in us that enjoys calling things by names we've made up. That was the prerogative that God gave Adam. 
We had an Australian in the camp who had a long German name we couldn't manage. However, he was heavily built and had low, beetling brows, so we called him Darwin, thinking he might be the missing link. When the time came for us all to go home, he was going round everyone saying, Hey, Jum, stop calling me Darwin. What will a girlfriend think? To get back to our smokers, here in Camburi, villagers would come to the camp selling tobacco, and this cheered our smokers up like nothing else could. It met their most pressing need. For some people, I think, the biggest anxiety of all those prison years was wondering where the next smoke would come from. Smoking seemed to relieve their hunger better than food could, and I've known starving men exchange their rations for a smoke. There must have been not a few who thus smoked themselves into their graves. They gave away their mortal life just for a whiff of smoke. And sadly, of course, some people seem to prefer pleasures equally insubstantial and fleeting to their unique and immortal life. Perhaps I ought to apologise for all this sermonising. My excuse is that years of musing over those prison experiences have perhaps led me to see them more in the light of eternity than of this world. And when you get old, as I am now, you realise that whether you like it or not, you'll soon be seeing everything in that light. We'd heard that we should be returning to Singapore as soon as the railway was finished, and at last, after nine months in Siam, the order came for the move south. There was great rejoicing, mitigated somewhat by news of the food shortage that prevailed there. So we crammed ourselves into the iron trucks again, and we rattled our way southwards through Siam. The train ran through huge forests, between rice fields so extensive you could almost see the curvature of the earth, through what looked like parkland, where we saw elephants grazing. And at last we crossed the frontier and came into Malaya. It seemed like home. The hills and the trees looked no different. The sky was the same. We were still at the back of beyond, but we felt that we were at last on a bit of the map that was marked red. We felt that an exile had ended. Our train reached Singapore in the middle of the night, but we hadn't long to wait before lorries turned up to take us to our new camp. The moon was nearly full, and as we drove through the deserted streets of the city, and saw so many reminders of our own past, our spirits rose. Lately, our status had been no higher than that of a beast of burden. But now we remembered that we were men of a certain culture, and there were more things in life than struggling for survival in a cholera-ridden jungle. When we reached the old Air Force camp that was to be our home, we found again with delight the mechanical obedience of modern plumbing. In Siam, we'd had to fetch water from the well or carry it up from the river, and even then we'd had to boil it before we dared drink it. But here we could just turn the tap and be waited on by the force of gravity. When we dumped our kit, most of us made straight for the showers. 
the cool, clean water rubbing down on us seemed to do more than remove dirt and sweat. It seemed to restore to us our dignity as men, a dignity that had almost been forgotten through our having to live so long like animals. And as we lay down to sleep that night on the concrete floor, we felt that if it was hard, at least it was civilized, and as such was a welcome change from the native-fashioned bamboo floors that we'd been used to. It cannot have been long, I think, before we were moved up to Changi Jail, the officers being in huts outside the jail and most of the other ranks inside. As at the beginning of our captivity, they broke up in this way the unity of our regiments. Sensible from their point of view, but an unhappy situation for us. As we had been warned, food here was in short supply, and there were no obliging natives coming to the camp to sell us eggs at ten cents each. But the less food there was, the more skilled our cooks became. Banana skin pie, for instance, when they put banana skins into the rice to give it all a slight banana flavour. And to counter the lack of calcium in our diet, they collected all eggshells and crushed them into powder and roasted all fish bones and ground them down too and then added it all to our rice. Even so, I remember, my teeth became loose, though perhaps this was due to our having nothing much to chew on. Meat, if I remember rightly, was entirely lacking in our diet. However, some enterprising souls found snails, and by dint of long cooking and massive flavouring with pepper or chilli, ate them with apparent pleasure. And of course any cats that wandered into our camp soon disappeared into someone's cooking pot. Rats, I was told, could be bought at, well, the equivalent of several days' pay. There was a little sea captain who turned up in the camp at this time. I don't know where he came from. I think the seamen who were with us were all survivors from ships sunk by German submarines. But this new arrival had a small white terrier, which the Germans could scarcely have taken on board. So maybe he wasn't a sea captain after all. But anyhow, he had this stout little terrier, which he led everywhere with him on a short rope. But alas, war is a terrible thing, and one night that little dog disappeared. I think it was at this time, too, that some Australians really excelled themselves. They were working on some job outside the camp, and every day an Indian would drive a herd of bullocks past where they were working. Well, the Australians hadn't eaten meat for months, and this was more than flesh and blood could endure. Some people really crave for meat. My friend Dennis Rowland told me that for months after his release, he couldn't bat a dog without drooling at the mouth. So one day, the Australians dug a pit, covered it with branches and grass, and waited for the Indian and his herd of cattle. As they came past, they grabbed the last beast, killed it, skinned it, cut off all the best joints and handed them out to the boys, threw the skin and carcass down into the pit and covered it up again with branches and grass. So when the poor Indian came running back ten minutes later, the Australians were all hard at work and scarcely looked up when he asked them 
if anyone has seen a stray cow. To provide salt for cooking, as I have said, men in working parties by the sea would bring back buckets of seawater. Some of the more enterprising prisoners would boil this seawater down to provide salt crystals, which they would sell. They found that the metal spring in the chin strap of a steel helmet makes an excellent resistance wire for cooking. So they would tap the camp electricity supply and leave their cans of seawater boiling all night. I don't think the Japanese ever discovered where all their electric power was going. Some people, I remember, grew garlic and ate plenty of it. If you stood downwind from them, you could tell they were simply reeking with it. Other people would buy chicks and build up a chicken farm. It's amazing how people differ. If everyone in the world were started off at exactly the same level, in a week or two, some, by sheer brains and industry, would already be far ahead of the others. We all started off in the same boat, but after three years of captivity, some people were relatively affluent and eating well, while others were barely surviving. But the unpleasant side of this was that a man who done well for himself could sit down to enjoy half a chicken for his dinner, opposite a colleague who had only the basic rice issue on his plate and appear not to notice the difference. We were short of everything in this camp. Smokers used sun-dried tomato leaves wrapped in newspaper, and after a time they could imagine this was like real tobacco. For coffee, we would roast rice till it was black, grind it down with a bottle on a hard surface, sweeten it with plenty of the local brown sugar, and drink it hot. It was black, it was sweet, it was hot. We just tried to overlook the fact that it was not coffee. When we arrived in our camp, we found sleeping huts, a cookhouse, and a medical store already built. I fancy our commanding officer was able to negotiate with the Japanese for a hut to be built to serve as a library. In all our camps, there were books available on loan to those who wished. I remember Father Aidan Jackson told me that he would always inspect the books in any camp he went to, slip into his coat pocket any he deemed dangerous, and drop them down a borehole. Deep boreholes in the sand served as our lures. In that environment, books on witchcraft, for instance, or pornography, could do a lot of harm. However, in every camp, we would always try to build some sort of chapel. So we soon got together and decided on an unused site just beyond our sleeping quarters. It was a small, sandy slope, and I'd wanted to have the altar at the top, so we'd look up to it. But the other said it would be better at the bottom, and as it turned out, this was by far the better arrangement. Building this little chapel was a great joy for many people. The designer and builder was Hamish Cameron Smith, an architecture student from Glasgow, but many others helped him by collecting the materials. Men on working parties down in Singapore would bring back a tile under their shirt. For the roof rafters, one man would decide he was ill and needed to be carried back to the camp on a stretcher, 
which his friends would make for him from timber lying handy. For the walls, I went round the houses in the camp where some of us were billeted and took down the metre-square white boarding from the ceilings. Thus, many people collected all we needed for the chapel, but Hamish was the sole creator of what turned out to be a real work of art. He designed it all in his head and put in every nail himself. He was the architect, the works manager and the builder. My task was to straighten out nails for him, saw along his pencil lines and be his odd job man. When it was finished, we found we needed drains to prevent the rainwater off the roof washing away the sand. And I noticed some large concrete drains outside the Japanese guardhouse. So I told Father Marsden that I'd take them while the guards were having their dinner. He thought I should first tell Father Dolan, our senior chaplain, but I said that if I were caught, it would be far better if the priests knew nothing about it. He gave me a mock, scornful look and said, you ought to be a Jesuit. Anyhow, I, I, I did get the drains. We still needed to make some sort of nave for our chapel, and this is where a young Dutch lieutenant, Herman Mayer, stepped in and took charge. He was really a very gifted young man and decided to turn the sandy slope into a fan-shaped nave with a rose going down by six-inch steps. To prevent the rain washing the steps away, we covered their edges with turf. There was a tennis court in the camp that was surfaced with a fine red gravel that we used to have on tennis courts before the war. Herman worked out what cubic footage of this we'd need and got us all to scrape this red gravel off the surface of the court until we had enough. With this, he covered the floor of the nave. Then he got us to put bits of planking on six-inch posts between the steps. These served as kneelers for the people behind or seats for the people in front. I must mention another name in this building work, though indeed there were many of us. This is Roy French, who put all his strength and enthusiasm into the work. Indeed, he really put in too much, because this and our general malnutrition led him to lose his sight and he went completely blind. I heard that after the war he convalesced in South Africa, married, and with the help of his wife, trained for physiotherapy. The courage that saw him through his prison years enabled him to cope with the years that followed. Because no one else wanted the job, I became the chapel gardener, and soon saw we needed a perimeter fence for the nave to separate it from the rest of the camp. Someone had told me that if you put a hibiscus branch in the ground it grows, so I reckoned we'd need a hibiscus hedge. Unfortunately, the cookhouse fires had already claimed all the hibiscus hedges in the camp except for one, and that was at the end of the camp commandant's garden. So I went there one morning, armed with my blunt saw, and cut it down. He came out onto his veranda and watched me doing it. Perhaps he wondered who on earth had told this man to cut his hedge down, but he did nothing. If you're dressed for the part and look unconcerned, it's amazing what you can get away with. A man in a boiler suit should walk right through a hospital ward and into the day room, unplug the television set with a murmur about replacing it, 
and walk out with it, and no one says a word. So I was able to walk off with that poor man's hibiscus hedge, but not having green fingers, the ones I put in all died. Looking back now, I wonder how I had the nerve to do such a thing. It must have been that the successful building of our chapel made us all feel so confident we felt we'd get away with anything. With the hibiscus hedge a total failure, Herman Mayer again came to our help and constructed a decorative barbed wire fence. He designed a semicircle of wire with the ends about a metre apart. He then hammered little stakes into the ground about 50 centimetres apart to form an elliptical perimeter to the nave. Then he tied the ends of the wires to the stakes and tied the wires together where they crossed. Then, in place of the failed hibiscus hedge, he planted what I think was a sort of convolvulus, which we called morning glory, because the purple trumpet-shaped flowers lasted only a day, or else mile a minute, because it grew so rapidly. Next to the chapel on either side, we grew red and white canna lilies. <coughs> we had no real soil there at all. It was just sand, leached by the heavy rains. But, and I've not seen this in any gardening book, human urine, mixed with two parts water, makes excellent fertiliser for flowers and green vegetables. So every evening I put a four-gallon petrol t tin outside our hut to save men trekking up to the urinals, and first thing every morning I collect it, fill it up at the taps, and go and water our flowers. So we had a lovely garden. In fact, what with the beauty of Hamish's chapel and the harmonious layout of Herman's nave and, of course, the presence of our Lord himself in the tabernacle, the chapel was a real oasis of quiet and consolation for many people. To have our Lord himself in the camp with us just made all the difference. Mick Moylan was Father Marsden's batman, and he used to spend most of the day praying there, kneeling with his head cocked on one side. Father Marsden said he didn't know whether Mick was going round his rosary or the rosary was going round Mick, but he certainly prayed a great deal. It was he who taught me how to say the rosary. We also got people to make rosaries. People out on working parties would bring in little hard berries they'd found on bushes. Some of the berries were oval, red and black in colour, and others were more heart-shaped and a bright red. They then bored thin holes through these. My job was to find electrical wire and strip it down for them to thread through the berries. A carpenter made little wooden crosses, and someone else made the figure out of printer's metal cast in a mould made of plaster of Paris provided by the camp dentist. We made over 200 of these rosaries. Let me say something more about Hamish. He had very ginger hair and always had to go round with a towel over his shoulders to prevent sunburn. He was utterly unselfish. We paid a monthly mess sub to supplement the meagre rations the Japanese gave us and when Hamish had paid his sub he would spend the rest on tobacco and fancy food to give to patients in the sick bay. This sick bay was out of bounds to the rest of the camp because of the TB and other ailments people had there. 
but Hamish never bothered much about rules, and he used to go there regularly. Officers weren't allowed into the main jail either, but when Hamish had finished our chapel, he built a second one inside the jail for the men there. One day, as he was going in, with his towel over his shoulders, and his face and chest probably flecked with green paint, we were then painting our chapel, the sentry stopped him and said, Aren't you an officer? Hamish looked at him and said in his ripest Glasgow accent, I ask you, do I look like an officer? Towards the very end of our captivity, he fell sick himself with TB. This was a great shock to us. I wrote, Catholic action's best support, doing all our saviour taught, couldn't do it on the ration, got a job with Catholic passion. But happily, no obituary was needed. He recovered in Zambia, where he went after the war for convalescence, and where he's been practising as an architect ever since. But let me finish the story of our chapel. Max Lee was an Australian corporal who volunteered at the end of the war to help the Australian War Graves Unit. He went with his unit along the route of the railway, exhuming bodies from rough graves or gathering them where they lay and taking them to the Memorial Cemetery in Singapore. Later, he was put in charge of a work party to burn down our prison camp. I now quote from an Australian newspaper article dated 25th of January 1997. Quote, He found among the hundreds of roughly built huts five different places of worship, four Christian and one Jewish. One particular chapel, in remarkably good condition, moved the young soldier deeply. Something about the simple, sturdy structure, standing in a carefully tended garden, symbolised the struggle of all those thousands of prisoners who clung to the belief that beyond the immediate horrors of the war there was a God who loved them. Beside it was a rough inscription. This chapel is dedicated to Our Lady Help of Christians and in memory of our deceased comrades who died in Malaya, the Netherlands East Indies, Thailand and Burma over whose remains there was no Christian symbol. Max was later able to meet hundreds of prisoners of war from Changi, of every faith and some with no formal religion, who told them they would go to the chapel every night to pray. End of quote. When his Japanese prisoners were about to set fire to our chapel, Max stopped them and asked the British Commission for permission to send the building to the War Museum in Canberra. Permission was granted, and he had the chapel dismantled and crated up and sent back to Australia. There, the crates were put in store and forgotten about, but came to light again in 1987, as they were preparing for Australia's bicentenary celebrations. They decided to re-erect the chapel as a memorial to all their prisons of war, and it was rededicated at 2.30 in the afternoon on August 15th, 1988, the same date and time that news reached Changi that the war was over. Hamish and I could not be there, but the following year we flew out and I offered Mass in the chapel, the first Mass that had been offered in it since the days of our captivity. (coughs) 
let me go back now to go on with our life in Changi in the last months of our captivity. Both here and up in Siam, we'd had many cases of beriberi. This is brought on by vitamin B deficiency. So when the Japanese found some old sacks of rice polishings, they passed them on to us. Every day we'd queue up and receive two spoonfuls of what looked like sawdust, but was nevertheless apparently full of vitamin B. Unfortunately, weevils had got there first, so when we poured water into the mug to drink it, drink it down, these little creatures would come to the top and start swimming around. I first thought of picking them out, but there were too many of them, and anyhow, they were probably full of proteins and so on, so I just stirred them all in and drank them down, standing over a drain, I remember, in case I brought them up. Food really was in short supply. Nevertheless, some people talked about it incessantly. They talked about what they ate before the war, what they'd eat when they got home, how our present diet could be improved. And if it wasn't food they were talking about, it was women. With little food in the cabin, of course, no women. Nevertheless, food and women seemed to be all their talk. We said their conversation never rose above their navels. However, there were others whose conversation was more positive, and I especially remember Reggie Burton's evening chat shows. Reggie Burton was a captain in the Norfolks. He was a regular and came of an army family. And he could chat away effortlessly and amusingly for hours on end. His whole leisurely manner of speaking was such that you sat there in happy expectation of his next amusing comment on life. Evening after evening, we sit around him, trying to stay within earshot, while he carried on his light-hearted and perhaps nonsensical chat with the people in his immediate vicinity. He was never bitter or offensive or personal, and his chat shows gave us much relief from the harshness of our daily lives. We were all much in his debt. There were others, too, who were real heroes, in that they not only helped us all, but risked their lives in doing so. They were the people who got us the news. They'd somehow assembled radio sets and hidden them. I never knew where, neither did I inquire who they were. But we were all grateful for what they did. While someone kept a watch out in case a guard might be coming, they'd listen to the news from India or Australia and then pass it on to two or three others. Each of these, in their turn, would pass it on to others, so that in an hour the whole camp would know what was happening in the war. The Japanese, I believe, could never find these sources of our news, though they knew we had them. It was around this time that some books came into the camp, and I read the story of St. Ignatius and the early Jesuits. It wasn't long before I, too, decided I want to be a Jesuit. Why? I think the name of the order, Society of Jesus, was the main attraction. But also, all those early Jesuits in England, in South America, in India and Japan, they all seemed to end up as martyrs, and they seemed a good thing. Also, I thought St. Ignatius a leader I could follow. He'd gone from an enthusiastic military life to a period of enforced inactivity while he recovered from his wounds, 
and from there he went straight into the enthusiastic following of Christ. And that is more or less how I saw my own life. I must not end this narrative without saying how magnificently the Dutch created our vegetable garden out of an arid hillside. They first contoured the whole site using simply a triangle of sticks and a plumb line. They then dug channels along the contour lines a yard apart with the earth, or rather sand, heaped up in between the channels. The topmost channel was slightly below the level of our showers, so they dug a channel connecting the two. In the evenings, when everyone was taking a shower, a team of men would stand at key points, diverting the water into this channel or that, until, by the time people had finished their showers, the whole area had been irrigated. They then made compost with the help of chicken manure to fertilise the soil. They'd made the desert blossom into a garden. Bullfrogs were a great nuisance to us in the early morning. These bullfrogs, they sit around our huts, and long before we wanted to get up, would start their croaking. One morning, I was being kept awake by a very loud croaking that came from immediately outside the door of our hut. He could have been doing it on purpose just to annoy us. So I got up and went outside to look at him. He had just inflated himself and was about to give us the benefit of his croak, of which he was obviously proud, but I looked him straight in the eye. In so far as a frog can look guilty, that frog looked guilty. Shame at his unsocial behaviour was written all over his face, and he silently deflated and crawled away. But living almost on the equator has its advantages. It's not all bullfrogs and mosquitoes. The moon and the stars at night were much more beautiful than the ones we have at home. The moon would come up between the palm trees, a really massive moon, as big as the trees, and we would watch it slowly climb the sky and move across the heavens. At midnight, we could even read by its light, and every star in the sky seemed to be out on show. The sheer beauty of the night sky was something of a tranquilizer after the stress and anxieties of the day. Towards the end of our captivity, the source of black market wheat flour gradually dried up. When the priests gave us Holy Communion, we could scarcely feel it on our tongues. It was such a tiny fragment, and eventually they had to stop saying Mass altogether. So far as I remember, they kept the real presence in the tabernacle till the end, but in the mornings, instead of Mass, all they could do now was to read us a chapter from the Imitation of Christ. Every month, towards the time of the full moon, we would ask ourselves if this was going to be the month for the Allies' invasion of Malaya. We assumed that this would be how we would eventually be liberated. However, apparently the Japanese had planned to shoot all officers and any other prisoners outside Changi Jail as soon as any fighting started in the region. So but for the bomb, I shouldn't be here. Then, in early August, we heard about the atom bomb on Japan and a few days later of the Emperor's surrender. For people who like that sort of thing, it's interesting to note that we were prisoners for just three and a half years. 
That's the duration in scripture of the times of tribulation. Twice the prophet Daniel, that's in Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 and chapter 12 verse 7, he speaks of a time, two times and half a time as being the, as being the duration of a chastisement allowed by God. And in the Apocalypse, St. John twice mentions 42 months as being the length of time allowed, first for the trampling of the holy city, that is chapter 11, verse 2, and then for the reign of the beast, in chapter 13, verse 5. We surrendered on February the 15th, 1942, and the emperor surrendered on August the 15th, 1945, three and a half years to the day. So now, we knew that the war was over and we'd won. And of course we knew the Japanese knew, and, and we knew that they knew that we knew. And they knew that we knew that they knew that we knew it. I'm getting confused. Anyhow, it was a complex situation, resolved, I was told, by a Japanese sergeant who parachuted down with a message for the Japanese commander of the island. He would not believe that the emperor could surrender and a member of the imperial family had to be flown out to assure him that this was indeed so. They would now have to surrender the island. During these days of transition, I thought that everyone behaved with commendable restraint. For the most part, we had to stay in the camp and were not allowed down into the city. The Japanese showed a stoic dignity except for one case I remember. I very much wanted to get some soap. We'd been using soap made in the camp from palm oil and wood ash, and I longed for something more civilised. So I went to see some sisters. If anyone in Singapore still had real soap, surely it would be the sisters. So I found a convent where there were some Chinese sisters, and I was speaking with one of them when a truck arrived, to take away the Japanese soldiers who'd occupied half the convent for the past three years. The sister broke off what she was saying with, Oh, they're going, and ran down to say goodbye to them. One young Japanese soldier was so overcome by her kindness that he burst into tears. We were issued with air letter forms so that we'd write home during the time of our captivity, we had indeed once been given postcards and told that we could write six words in capitals, no more. And of course, these would be censored to make sure that nothing derogatory was said about the Japanese or the conditions under which we were living. So one man's letter said it all. He wrote, Food's great, just like Lock Dirk. <laughs> in that first letter home, I told my parents I'd become a Catholic since leaving England and that in spite of everything I'd had the happiest three and a half years of my life. I forget how I tried to explain it but it would not have been more succinct than King David's that has put joy into my heart more than when corn and wine abound in Psalm 4. I expect my family thought I'd gone off my head. We had a wonderful voyage home. It was a Polish ship, the Sobieski, and of course we ate and ate. They put weighing machines out 
and in the first 15 days I put on 14 pounds. During the voyage we called in at Colombo, had a swim in the Red Sea and saw Gibraltar as we passed. We finally docked at Liverpool. A good lady came home with me all the way to Kent to make sure everything was all right. I suppose there could be cases where the returning soldier might find himself walking into a serious family problem and her presence would be needed. As it was, she just witnessed our wonderful family reunion and withdrew. The first thing I did after getting home was to see my doctor and he prescribed a course of Guinness and milk. And the second thing I did was to locate the whereabouts of the Jesuits and go to see them. As it happened, I got the address wrong and went to 118 Mount Street, a butcher shop. Edified that the Jesuit provincial should be living over a butcher shop, I inquired where he was. The butcher was deaf and thought I wanted a dentist, but a woman in the shop directed me round the corner to a number 114. Father Martin Darcy, the provincial, received me very kindly, and after chatting with me, sent me round to see two other priests. They took me on, fixing a day in mid-January for my entry, and gave me a form for my doctor. At this juncture in my life, I decided to reduce the first part of my surname to its initial letter. My surname is Simon Thwaites. But the sort of priest I wanted to be didn't go around with a double-barreled name. All the same, I think I was wrong, and many times I've regretted what I did. Catholics will put up with almost anything from a priest, as long as he tries to be a real priest and teaches true Catholic doctrine. So it's only when I'm voting, or the doctor, or using my passport, that I'm able to enjoy my full identity. Anyhow, St. John tells us in the Apocalypse, in chapter 2, that if we make it to heaven, we'll all get a new name, so maybe it's not all that important. I was still on sick leave and on full pay when I went to the noviceship. After three months as a novice, I wrote to the pay office and asked if I could perhaps be demobbed. They gave me a date for this, and one day in April, I went to a demobilization centre, was given a cheap civilian suit, and officially demobbed. The story that had started in Victoria Station in the first days of September 1939 had now ended. After having a drink with another man who'd also just been demobbed, I returned to my Jesuit novitiate, which I'd already decided was worse than the Japanese POW camps. Thanks be to God that I survived the one and the other and drew great profit from both. Towards the end of my seminary formation, when I was already ordained and had finished the theology course, I wrote the following lines. I was now able to express more clearly what I had vaguely been feeling during those prison years. I passed two lovers in a lane, lovers for all to see. Hand in hand they walked along, they did not notice me. But then I thought, far better off am I, sweet Lord, than they, for they have just these few short hours, but I'm with you all day, and all night too, and all the week, and all the whole year through, and all eternity as well, I'll always be with you. And they were there, just hand in hand, but your embrace of me is closer far than human love can ever hope to be. 
we have an inward union, the like of which is none. You live in me, and I in you. Our love has made us one. And this our love is pure and chaste. It cannot tire or cloy. A gift divine, it fills my heart with more than human joy. So teach all lovers, Lord, I pray, that while indeed it's true, love reigns supreme, yet teach them this. Their first love must be you. Well, that must serve as a conclusion to these rambling reminiscences.